Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Chris Dillo, Investors Chronicle's economist and special guest Patrick Colony, Certified Financial Planner at Chase Devere. This week's portfolio clinic features a couple who have a large portfolio worth £1.4 million invested across 21 UK holdings, including a FTSE 100 tracker fund and preference shares. They say they have tried various different investment strategies, but nothing works consistently, although they are influenced by an investment book called the Zulu Principle, which advises concentrating on one approach, for example, buying growth shares. First of all, Pat, does a portfolio purely centred on UK holdings provide enough diversification? Uh, For most people, the answer to that is no. With an investment portfolio, especially if it gets to a decent size, or if protection is of some concern to you, then it makes sense to diversify both geographically, but then also in terms of asset classes as well. What are the particular risks of just having holdings in one country, for example, the UK? Yeah, the, the, the risk, very simply, is is that your money could all go up together, which is great, but actually it could all fall down together as well. Um, and so it makes sense to spread risk so that even if part of your portfolio is falling, there are bits of it that, that aren't falling. Chris, what are your thoughts on geographic diversification? Um, I largely agree with Pat, subject to the caveat that over shortish periods, the UK market tends to rise and fall with overseas markets. So in that sense, diversification across international shares isn't going to help you. But that said, it has been the case in recent years that the UK market has underperformed the rest of the world. And although it's impossible to say for sure whether that will continue, it does mean that a purely UK approach has in the past meant some sacrifice of returns. Yeah, just one one thought occurred. I mean, some investors would point to the fact that in, say, the FTSE 100, 70% of its earnings are from overseas. And they might argue that, oh, actually, the UK market is global anyway. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, that, that that's certainly the case. And that's one reason why the UK market does rise and fall um, with the rest of the world. The problem is that a lot of those overseas earners have been mining companies, which have... Um, taken a big beat in lately. Okay. If you're going to um, diversify a portfolio like this, which um, perhaps just has UK holdings, um, how would you go about doing it? Pat, what would be your suggestions on this? Yeah, just, just in terms of the UK, if, if you're sticking to the UK, obviously you're missing out on the opportunity to invest in lots of really, really good quality companies that, that, that are listed overseas. And in this particular case, with this particular portfolio, there, there's the focus on mid and small size companies anyway, uh, which won't have large overseas earnings. In terms of diversification, geographically, yes, it, it makes sense for people to invest in the UK, but also the US, Europe, um, Asia, Japan, and also even though they're largely out of favour in the emerging markets. In terms of asset classes, for most people, a good spread of equities, fixed interest, maybe some property would, would, would be sufficient. Chris, how would you diversify this portfolio? Well, one issue I have with it is it seems to me to be a little too much focused on growth stocks. Hmm. And I'm not happy with that um, because it is actually prodigiously difficult to predict future growth. And history tells us that investors tend to overpay for the perception of growth, um, with the result that growth stocks tend to underperform value. And in particular, it's dangerous to focus upon AIM shares 
because we know for the last 20 years that these have underperformed the market. And one reason for that is that investors tend to pay too much for the small chance of very big returns, with the result that smaller stocks that appear to offer that prospect are overpriced and so subsequently underperform. Patrick, what's your view on AIM shares? Yeah, uh, I agree with what Chris is saying. In, in this particular portfolio, they, they, they seem to be willing to take the risk of some stocks falling quite significantly on the basis that others will compensate by, by rising substantially. There, there are some very, very good AIM companies, but actually there are a lot of companies in the AIM index that are not very good as well. Um, just to throw a number at you, I mean, the AIM all share index back in January 2000 was sitting at 2,925. Today it's 700 and something. So that just shows we're looking at a fall in the index of about 75%, which which obviously suggests that, that yes, some companies have done incredibly well. If you can pick them, all well and good. But actually, there's a lot of risk investing in aim shares. Okay. Now, the reader in the portfolio clinic says his reason for not having exposure to overseas markets is because he can't find a way of identifying markets which are likely to rise faster than London. Is this a good way to choose your overseas holdings, or I suppose in this case, choose not to allocate overseas? And if that's not the case, Patrick, what are the steps that you should take when deciding you know, where am I going to allocate overseas? It would be great if you could predict with confidence which markets are going to outperform the UK. But but unfortunately, you can't. Um, if we go back to the time of the financial crisis, the general consensus was that emerging markets would outperform, growing economies, no debt, and Western markets would struggle. What we've seen since then is, is the complete opposite. The reality is nobody knows which markets are going to perform the best, which is why you should have a spread across to cover yourself basically for whatever happens. Okay. And Chris, you you said as well that you can't predict growth. So um, when, you know, when when you're choosing um, overseas markets and asset allocating in your portfolio, I mean, what sort of things do you think you should um, look at and consider when trying to choose which regions to, let's say, get get funds for? Well, this is terribly boring, but I I agree with Pat again. It's just impossible to predict growth in, in overseas markets. And one thing in particular you should not do is pay attention to expected economic growth. Because one thing that is abundantly clear um, for, from the past is that there's no correlation over longish periods between GDP growth and, and, and stock market performance. So I, I, I would simply take a scattergun approach, invest um, across markets, and that therefore diversify against idiosyncratic country risk. Pat, would you do that? I mean, do you think that, I mean, right, so you've got your UK portion and you're making up a portfolio. Would you literally put equal amounts into a range of overseas markets or would you have a bit of discretion there um, um, according to certain yeah, factors? Not, not, not equal amounts, I don't think. It, yeah. it would really depend on, on, on the particular client. But mm. we would tend to have higher weightings in Western markets um, and, and lower in emerging markets. But, but really, it, it is client-specific. There, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, in this particular case, that they, they seem to research individual UK stocks, which is fine. That's far more difficult to do with overseas stocks. And, and so in this particular case, it might be a sensible approach. Yes, if they want to carry on researching UK stocks, but then for overseas exposure, looking at either collective funds or, or, or just passive exposure to, to, to diversify their risks. Okay. Now, the other thing that uh, struck me was um, they both retired. Um, but this is quite a racy portfolio. Mm-hmm. Should you be running something like this when you're retired? It, it really depends on... The, the, for most people, the answer is no. But, but it really depends in terms of how much they're relying on this money. 
what other assets do they have? How much do they need this money to support themselves? How much of this money do they want to forward on to, to future generations? For most people, it's not a typical retired person's or, or couple's portfolio. Okay. All right. Some useful points there. Now, turning to last night's news on the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank announced that it's actually going to hold rates for now, despite um, some people's um, expectations of a rise. Chris, what kind of effect do you anticipate this action will have on markets? Um, to be honest, very, very little. Um, I think people had re- retreated from the view that the Fed was going to raise rates last night because of troubles in China. And it now looks as if um, the market is betting upon a rate rise in December, which is pretty much what FOMC participants um, themselves said last night. But frankly, I I get very impatient with all all this Fed watching and predictions of a very small rise in interest rates in the near term, because if that is going to have a big impact upon your own portfolio or upon um, the world economy, then the big thing we should worry about is just how fragile your portfolio and the economy is and not on, on what the Fed's doing. I think there's a much bigger story here that doesn't get the attention it deserves, and that is that the Fed and and markets have consistently overestimated um, inflation, growth, and the path of interest rates in the last few years. Um, and this suggests that the threat of secular stagnation has been underestimated. And the big question for investors is, is that underestimation of the threat of stagnation going to continue? Okay. Um, now, in some quarters, this move will be considered favourable to markets, but are there any assets that will respond badly to an interest rate hold? Um, well, well it, it's a mixed blessing. On the one hand, um, cheap money is good for markets. But on the other hand, you've got to consider what the Fed is saying. And the Fed is saying that um, the global economy is too fragile for it to want to risk even a small rise in rates now. And, and, and that's adverse for markets. And this is always the case with, with any change in interest rates or no change in interest rates. You've got to weigh the effect of, of cheap money against the signalling effect. Uh, or, or, of uh, an interest rate move or, 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 or no move. Uh, and one of the great difficulties traders have is knowing which of those two conflicting effects dominates. So I, I would not try, as an individual investor, to try and anticipate what the Fed's doing and anticipate the market response to it. Pat, um, what's your position here? I mean, what, how do you think investors should position their portfolios to deal with, let's say, the ongoing uncertainty and the possibility that rate rises might happen later this year, early next year? Yeah, pe- people try to predict interest rate rises. People have been trying for the last six years to predict interest rate rises, and, and they keep getting it wrong. Um, the consensus view prior to last night, a few weeks ago, was that rates would rise. As we got closer to the date, it's that they wouldn't. December now looks like the most likely date. We may sit here in December and it hasn't happened. We don't know yet. We don't know what's going to happen in, in the meantime. What What is for sure is at some point they are going to rise, whether that's December, whether that's 2016, whenever that happens, they are going to rise. They've signposted it well enough. 
what they've also signposted is when rates rise, it's likely to be very small, very gradual. So in terms of the impact on markets, markets are aware of what is likely to happen. They're not entirely sure of when it's going to happen. So there shouldn't, in theory, be any great surprises. I mean, generally, when interest rates rise, that's bad for some asset classes. It's bad for fixed interest because the fixed the fixed return on, on fixed interest assets looks less favourable. If the US... Um, increase their rates in theory that strengthens the dollar that's bad for particular areas as well it's bad for emerging markets in terms of economies not necessarily in terms of shares but in terms of economies because money can flow out of the emerging markets and a lot of emerging market debt is denominated in dollars it's bad potentially for other asset classes commodities a lot of those are denominated in, in dollars as well but as i say all of this is signposted if we're looking at small incremental rises over a period of time there might be some impact, but I, I don't think that people necessarily need to adjust their portfolios in, in, in order to counter it. Okay. Chris, do you think anybody, uh, as investors, should make any changes or anything uh, you know, to prepare for what's going on with their portfolios? Not, not on account of what the Fed is doing, no. And the things you should worry about more are the things that cause the Fed to change interest rates or not, and that the things that would cause the Fed to surprise us. Um, it's far more worrying that the possibility that the Fed won't raise rates in the next few months because, say, China's slowdown continues and continues to have adverse effects on on global markets. That's our big concern, not whether the Fed raises rates by a quarter point or not. How would you suggest dealing with that, then? If China's slow, what are some do's and don'ts for investors? Well, the impact of a China slowdown would be to simply depress economic activity around the world, and that would be adverse for for equities. Now, it could be that that risk is now priced in, and it could be that markets will actually recover in relief at that risk not materialising. And if you base your um, investment on the calendar, as I do, then, then that possi- pleasant possibility is quite a high one. But other than that, um, I would just be aware of the risk that, 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 that China poses to global markets generally. Um, on a sort of related matter, in the Money article this week, um, personal finance writer Kate Bailey looks at whether you should take out inflation protection. Because if uh, rates are going to rise, and obviously they still might rise in the US, and we think they might rise in the UK early next year, um, this could signal um, an inflation rise. Um, Chris, do you think that you should add some inflation protection to your portfolio if you don't already have it? No. Um, The problem with inflation protection is it's prodigiously expensive. Index-linked guilt yields are now negative which means that if you hold proper inflation protection, you are, you are guaranteed to lose money. And remember that nominal assets uh, ensure you against expected inflation. You know, that's what the gap between conventional and index guilt yields measures. Um, so so in, that, in that sense, I, I wouldn't bother with inflation protection at the moment. Pat, what, what's your view on inflation protection? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to know which asset class you can invest in that will give you inflation protection. The, the only investments that, that guarantee that will happen are the NSNI index-linked savings certificates, but they're not available now. So, so if, if you're looking at individual asset classes, people who have in the past have said gold, for example. Well, we've, we've seen the price of gold in, in recent times as well. The, the, the best way to get 
protection against inflation is simply to have a balanced and diversified growth portfolio. So, so you've got assets in there which have the potential to grow, but also you have some protection as well. I, I don't think there's a supersonic asset class or, or fund that will do the job for you. Okay. What, I mean, what about real assets like property? Yeah, property as part of a portfolio, but you wouldn't rely on, on property because, like any other asset class, it has the potential to fall as well as rise. And so th- there are certainly no guarantees that, that it will outperform inflation for you over the long term you'd expect it to, mm. but you cover it off by holding other assets alongside it. Okay. Some interesting ideas there. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Patrick Connolly, Certified Financial Planner at Chase Devere, and Chris Dillow, Investors Chronicles Economist. You can read more about diversifying your portfolio, the effects of interest rate policy, and inflation protection in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.